Hi, I'm Brenda Darden Wilkerson, and welcome to another episode of Be The Way Forward. This week, we have a special conversation to share with you that originally happened live on stage at Grace Hopper Celebration 2023, where I had the great opportunity to speak with artificial intelligence expert, Dr. Joy Bolamwini. The Grace Hopper Celebration is a really exciting conference that we plan every year here at anitab.org. It's the largest global gathering of women and non-binary technologists, and this year we had about 30,000 attendees across in-person and virtual experiences. So I wanted to give all of our listeners a peek behind the scenes by sharing my conversation with Dr. Bolamwini. She's the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League and best-selling author of the book, Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. I'm loving my copy. You want to get one too. Since our talk on stage, the conversation around AI has only heightened. OpenAI replaced all the women on its board with men. And the New York Times list of who's who in AI featured zero women. Hearing from Dr. Bolawini always feels necessary and urgent. She helps us to understand the biases in AI, and this conversation has only become more relevant in the months since we spoke. Here it is. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Yeah. All right. That was, that's reasonable. Okay. All right. All right. So I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you for coming. But I'm so excited that you get to hear Dr. Joy Bolamwini. This woman, you know, you heard a few of her titles. It was like, I don't know, maybe 3% of, you know, the impact that she has. And I am so proud to call her my friend. You know, she like actually, you know, answers the phone when I call and stuff. And it's like really <laughs> a joy for me. Um, but we really want, I really want to spend time with her so that you can just soak up her wisdom and her knowledge and, and really be inspired to do what you are going to do and your part. So welcome, Dr. Joy. Thank you for having me. And thank you for returning my text messages. <laughs> <laughs> All the time. I mean, it's just so amazing to be able to be at a place where you can be around great minds and great hearts, right? It's not just her mind, it's her heart. And the impact that we can have on the world when we just unleash ourselves and do our part too. So I'm so glad that you're here at Grace Hopper again. You've been doing this for us for a while. We keep inviting her back, like, can you come back? And she's like really busy right now, but I'm gonna let her tell you, I mean, she's always busy, but she's got a special reason for being busy right now. And I'll let her tell you a little more about that later. So. Patience can be a virtue, but it's also fascinating how technology sometimes capitalizes on our impatience, creating, creating what Dr. Joy calls convenience shackles in exchange for our face data. I can't wait for you to explain for all of us what does what do you mean by convenience shackles? Uh, such a great question. First of all, so excited to be back at Grace Hopper. I think this is my seventh one. 
My first one was when I was an undergraduate at Georgia Tech. Not sure if there's some yellow jackets in the house. Okay, yellow jackets. I got the socks from the booth, so y'all should go check out the booth and then have been coming back time and time again. This question that you have about convenience shackles, I think about it when I'm in an airport, the line is long, the flight is near, the time is running out, and they point you over to some machine and say you can pass through. And in that moment, it's so tempting because of the context to just give in. But what we're not always thinking about is if we give very valuable data like our face data, our biometric data, our iris data now, right? What can happen with it, not just in the airport, but anybody else who might have access to that data. So earlier, at the Algorithmic Justice League, we did a campaign talking about the IRS's use of facial recognition for access to basic tax services. Again, it's meant to be convenient. Later on, we found out the third party vendor they were using was actually scanning people's faces uh, with suspected uh, fraudsters. Why might this be problematic? We've seen time and time again misidentifications. The most recent one that still touches me is Portia Woodruff. She was arrested eight months pregnant for a carjack. Do you know anyone carjacking eight months pregnant? <laughs> Not me. Uh, you know? And it happened in the city of Detroit where already Robert Williams was falsely arrested due to a face recognition match. So that we're having this conversation in 2023 because some people think it's more convenient to use the biometric uh, systems can have really grave and intense consequences. And she was actually having contractions in the holding cell. When they finally let her out, she had to be rushed to the emergency room. So you put two lives in danger. So when I see the expansion of facial recognition technologies, and I get the convenience. There's a difference between opening your iPhone or whatever other smart device you might have and then being caught up in mass surveillance. So I think it's really important that we don't let the convenience or the supposed convenience for some people uh, distract us from what can happen with that extremely valuable data that is often being uh, asked for us to surrender. I mean, you, and you've talked about it. You're talking about how we sort of get tricked into it by it being convenient for us, right? Uh, and, and our choices get taken away. And you talked about it sometimes being optional. I'd love for you to share how that facial recognition software at the airport is actually optional, but they don't let you know. Exactly, so here, that's such a great point you're bringing up, because a narrative we sometimes hear is, well, they chose to do this, right? You gave up your data, you could have opted out. Did you see the sign? I know I barely saw the sign. Did the sign even say facial recognition? I was on a flight to uh, Venice a few weeks ago being awarded for this type of work. And the flight was delayed by at least half an hour. So you can already imagine international flight, a lot of Italians and others just waiting to get to uh, Venice. And by the time I actually got to the gate and I saw they were doing facial recognition, I didn't even have enough time to read the sign that was behind. 
given this is the work I do, I was like, I'm a US citizen. I would like to opt out. <laughs> and the person uh, didn't say yes or no. So other people wouldn't even hear if they had that option. Instead, he asked to look at my passport. I had half my face covered, so he actually didn't even do the real check. There were other problems there. But in that kind of situation, this is where you end up with that coercive uh, consent. IRS is another example. They said that the third party facial recognition system they were using was optional. But for people to create new accounts, they had to go through that system. If you read the terms of use in the privacy policy for that system, they say if you use it, you no longer have a right to sue them. But you were trying to access your taxes. So in that case, the government is failing us and failing to provide viable human uh, alternatives. Right, I mean, so when you, you think about it, in a split second, we try to take care of things in our lives. We're at the airport, we're just trying to get to the gate. We're trying to get our taxes done, that's always fun, right? Last the, minute, but on time. Last minute, but you get it done. <laughs> and the consequences of, of that sort of thing. And, you know, I want to say, I didn't know about, I don't know if I had even had the opportunity that airports I was going to had started doing the scanning or not, but, but Joy mentioned it. You know, we were con in contact with each other. And so, I mean, I'm a nerd. So when I get there and I see it, I, and she told me that I could opt out. So I'm standing there and I'm trying to read. And it never, I never saw anything that said it was optional. And so when I told the, the person that I wanted to opt out, she actually got angry with me. Mm. So it's, it's really about us not only being educated, but also being able to stand our ground. Because she didn't have a right to be angry with me. And she did not have a right to tell me that I had to do it. So we have to make sure that we are not swayed by that. Absolutely. And this is why we launched fly.ajl.org, not just because it's the coolest subdomain <laughs> I could think of, right? But so people can share their stories of traveling. And so often we hear that type of experience you had, where you weren't sure you could opt out, you tried and you were disrespected or made to feel like you had to opt-in. And the Department of Homeland Security, they have shared that they want to roll facial recognition to over 400 airports. The idea is what they call friction-free travel, right? And again, sometimes friction is good. <laughs> you know, you don't necessarily want it to be so easy that you surrender this extremely valuable data, particularly now that we're in this era of generative AI. So you might have heard of voice clones replicating the, loved, the voices of loved ones and then being used for hoax. Now you have this valuable uh, biometric data, not just your voice, your face, your eyes, that can also be used uh, in nefarious ways as well. So I think in that moment, it's hard to even, like I said, I, I, this is my work, right? And I was like, I don't know, I really do wanna go to Venice. I need a little vacation time. <laughs> do I wanna say anything? But I think it's important that there continues to be friction and there continues to be uh, resistance with these sorts of systems. Yeah, absolutely. We could talk so much more about that. But can you discuss how toxic data can lead to representational harms and biases in AI, which may be even more significant than those reflected in our society? Oh, that's such a great question because something I hear often is these systems are merely reflecting us. 
we know we're biased, but it's no worse than humans. That's what you hear sometimes. Bloomberg did a great article that was um, testing generative AI systems. And what they did is they took a stable diffusion since it's open source, and they gave it different prompts. So they gave a prompt for, give me an image of a CEO. You think it looked like this epic CEO that we all know? <laughs> That's not the image we got. That's the image I wish I had seen, right? Give me the image of a fast food worker, social worker. Oh, th then the diversity came in. Okay, it was, it was in there somewhere. Give me the image of a terrorist. Give me the image of a judge. When it comes to um, the roles that judges play, about 30% of judges are women. But with the data that they had generated, it was within single digits of a percentage of judges that were women. And when you think about AI models, right, and you think about pattern recognition, the probabilistic aspect of it means it will continue to amplify the bias. So it makes it worse than what's already existing. So now you go a step further and you think about training new models on synthetic data because maybe we started resisting and we said no more scraping our data. Then you get even more skewed data sets going into the next generation. And I'm using images as one example, but you can think of this with text, you can think of it with uh, voice and so forth. So I think it's really important that one, we don't set our current status quo as the target, higher aspirations, right? But also knowing that the systems as they exist are making things worse. Mm. So I wanna talk more about justice and consent and stolen data. So let's discuss the consequences of stolen video and audit data. I mean, you already said some of it, which can lead to the creation of deep fake content and influence elections. AI can be used to engineer new pandemics or for propaganda, for censorship, for surveillance, or to release autonomously pursued harmful goals. So I just kind of wanted all of that to set in, and that's just sort of like, right. So can you talk more about that? I mean, I, I think of an ism, racism, sexism, colorism, ableism, it's being encoded into uh, the systems uh, that we see. I also think of this notion of data colonialism. When I did my uh, research on the Gender Shades project, which looked at gender classification with models from well-known uh, tech companies, Microsoft, IBM, uh, Amazon, and others, after the paper came out, I remember reading a headline where a startup from China was actually going to Zimbabwe and providing face surveillance technology in exchange for something very precious, right? The biometric data of their dark-skinned citizens. And it made me, when I was reading that, one, I was like, wait, should I have said anything? The answer is yes, right? <laughs> you know, because it meant more people knew this was an issue. But also, 
it also meant other actors were trying to find ways to fill in the accuracy gap. But we can't just stop at how well something performs. We have to think about how it's going to be used, as you know. So very accurate facial recognition gives the tools for state surveillance, authoritarian control. Think of a drone with the camera, with the gun and facial recognition. Bad if it works, bad if it doesn't, you know? So it's not just this question of how accurate uh, can we make a system? And then also thinking about the inequities in data rights around the world. I remember doing an art exhibition. It's a five-year traveling art show. It started in the UK. I think it's in Spain now. Got stuck in China during the pandemic. So 2020 was there for a while. Now it's coming around. When I was working with the installation team, they wanted to represent the data set I had collected, which had many European faces and many African uh, faces of parliament members. GDPR had been passed at that point, and so the European members had protections. I mentioned this to the team, and they said, oh, we'll just show the Africans. I said, that's not okay. Even if the laws don't exist, they were right. Lawful but awful, right? You know, you gotta be mindful of that. I like that, I like that. I'm lawful and awful. And the other side of it was also going back to the generative fakes and things like that. Because I said it was not okay, the protections need to be the same for the entire data set, they said, okay, we'll make a synthetic data set. The lighter skinned individuals for the synthetic methods they use, GANs, generative adversarial networks, they look like humans. The darker skinned folks, I've never seen hair patterns. <laughs> they, they did not look like plausible humans uh, to me. So I also said they wouldn't be able to use those images. Anyhow, I just thought it was really fascinating the ways in which you try to mm -hmm. go the convenient route. So if one territory, one country, EU, UK, US, et cetera, if they have, or in our case in the US, Illinois, right, if they have certain laws in place, generally what companies will do is, all right, we won't mess with that territory and we'll do the other more convenient practices elsewhere. So that's why AI governance and having legislation in all territories is very key. Otherwise, the vulnerable will be targeted. I, I'm, I'm just sort of overwhelmed by all of that. I mean, we're, we're intelligent people. We are in tech. Have many of you thought about those ramifications? Think about that. And I'm hoping that if there are any business leaders in here, you think about the people that are at your business making decisions of convenience, that are inconvenient. Wow, okay. So gone unheeded are the warnings from many technologists. We could get into that. There was that amazing ProPublica article that really highlighted you and others who were like, warning, warning. Oh yes, the Rolling Stone, get my guitar. <laughs> okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Just amazing, right? If you hadn't, did Rolling Stone, did I misquote it? I think it was Rolling oh, Stone. I think it was Rolling Stone, okay. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it, please go and look it up. It's amazing. Many of those technologists look like you and me. And they were warning about the dangers of AI inherent in its development. The initial creators of AI, however, have sort of taken their hands off the wheel as if they couldn't foresee the future. Now, what are we here? Now that we're here having this conversation, 
What is in our power to do? I think one thing that is really important is for us to continue to show up and share our stories. I actually didn't want to speak up about my experiences of coding in a white mask, etc. And as I was writing Unmasking AI, my forthcoming book, it was interesting to go back and see how reluctant I was because I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be the gadfly, I didn't want to be the naysayer, I wanted to be the one building cool tech. But it was while I was trying to build cool tech, this Merida, you know, put anything I'd like in my reflection that I ran into um, these issues. And they're issues I'd seen even when I was an undergrad at Georgia Tech. So I knew these problems existed, but I always thought, eh, I'm too young, it's somebody else's, they'll figure it out, the technology will get better, et cetera. I, I made all of these reasons why it shouldn't be me, hoping somebody else would do it. And then I got to the media lab, I had the experience of coding in whiteface at this epicenter of innovation, an election had happened, I thought, you know, all hands on deck, let me do my part. And so I think it's really important that we all feel addressing algorithmic bias and also algorithmic harms that can come from even so-called perfected systems is our responsibility and not somebody else's. Because sometimes it takes you taking a stand, sharing your story, right, to inspire others to do the same. That's so important, it's so critical. And I think as women, non-binary people, many times we go through that whole fog of thinking, well, what if I speak out? What will they think? Or what, you know, what will happen to my role? What will happen to me? What will happen to other people who think like me? I'm sure y'all never gone through any of that, right? Right? Um, and part of what I want you to get out of this conference is we all have to do this. We all have to do our part small and large, because when we know these things are wrong and we let them happen, we know what's inevitable. But if we start now, we could do something about it, or at least we can try. So what are the efforts in establishing a bill of rights for AI and the idea of mandating periodic third-party audits of AI systems? Yes, so one thing that is exciting to me at this particular juncture when we're thinking about the governance of AI is we have tools. We have models. People have been thinking about this for quite some time. So I was so excited when last year uh, the White House released a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, which among other points said that everybody in the U.S. should be protected from algorithmic discrimination. So if you're trying to get hired, right, if you're going up for promotion and algorithms are being used, if you're trying to get accepted into a grad program or college or other aspects, if you want a loan, your hue should not be a cue for the algorithmic to dismiss you. Your gender should not be a hindrance for you to get opportunity. And to have that in the blueprint, I think, is wonderful. Also, you have uh, human alternatives and fallbacks. I was talking about the IRS adopting IDME earlier, right? Those human alternatives and fallbacks also mean jobs. For people. We don't necessarily want to automate um, everything away. And I've also been thinking of this notion of the apprentice gap. 
I was uh, at a panel, a lot of things were happening in New York last week, UN General Assembly, on a panel, and there was an AI co-founder, CEO, brilliant guy, and he was talking about all the ways in which large language models could um, automate the mundane, the boring, etc. you know, call center jobs. I was like, those jobs, those essential jobs, right, support families. Those essential jobs provide a dignified work, but also those entry-level jobs are a step towards mastery of something else. So are we living in the age of the last masters? Because if you don't have that foundation, you now have this apprentice gap. So then what happens when we don't have the seeds for the next generation? Y'all see, y'all see what I'm talking about here? <laughs> Okay, just a tiny soapbox. First of all, Poet of Code, that's one of her titles. Did you hear that sort of poetry in there? He, you're huge, should not be a cue. I love that, right? But I feel like the connection of the humanities in our technical work is so important because we're doing work for humans. And so many times we automate around the humanities, around people. And I'm hoping the people in this room and the sound of my voice think about that as we go back to our computers, to whatever the type of tech is that we do. So now you got to sit down with somebody pretty important in the government recently, right? Do you want to talk about that? Oh, sure. All right. Tell us. Who is yes, that? Yes, actually, that? this is the epilogue for the book. <laughs> I thought I was done with the book, and then um, I was invited to San Francisco to be part of an AI roundtable with uh, President Biden, um, also Governor Newsom, and uh, seven other uh, AI experts. And we spoke for about 90 minutes. And I was really excited in that room I could bring with me who I call the ex-coded, those who have been harmed, condemned, convicted, otherwise negatively impacted by AI systems. And so I brought a photo of Robert Williams holding the Gender Shades Justice Award. We came up with this. Brenda supports the Algorithmic Justice League. So we had gone through a process of selecting somebody to recognize for their contribution, not as a researcher, not as a technologist, but as somebody who is speaking up against algorithmic harm on the front line. And so to be able to share that picture with President Biden, and then another one where he's with his daughters who he was arrested in front of, really humanized what we were talking about when there's so much excitement about the promise of AI, but not enough attention to the realities of the peril. And I am an optimist. I want us to enjoy all of the benefits we can have from AI, but I want those benefits to be evenly distributed, and I don't want the burdens to continuously fall on the marginalized, which has been the way it has been in the past, but it doesn't need to be that in the future. Right. So true, and that clock just said that we're out of time, and I don't know why they didn't give us more time, because hasn't this been amazing to hear Dr. Bowman? So I'm just gonna ask you to give us just really quick takeaway or actions that people in this room can take around this subject to really be part of the solution. Absolutely, again, I think speaking up when you see something is off is, so important and I would encourage you all to join the Algorithmic Justice League. We continue to have different campaigns 
for ways you can get involved. So whether you want to support the production of the next documentary that helps more people understand what's happening with AI, whether you want to be part of participatory algorithmic audits where you're helping us test uh, various systems, these are all ways of being involved. And also sharing with the people around you these issues of algorithmic bias. Some of most of us gathered here have some notion of it, but there's so many people outside of these walls where AI can feel overwhelming. We're caught in between fear and fascination. And so a lot of what I try to do with the book Unmasking AI is show that there's hope. There, these are the ways we can make change and it's not some Pollyannish thing because we've done it before and we'll continue to do it with your support. With that, can you thank me? Can you join me in thanking Dr. Bolamwini? Thank you, Joy. And thanking CEO. <laughs> this is what a CEO looks like. Brenda. Thanks again to Dr. Joy Bolamwini for this great conversation. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, then please follow Be The Way Forward wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can also watch video episodes of this podcast on the AnitaB.org channel on YouTube. For more on how you can be the way forward, head on over to AnitaB.org. Be the Way Forward is produced by Dominique Ferrari and Paige Heimsen. Sound design and editing by Neil Ines and Ryan Hammond. Mixing and mastering by Julian Kwasniewski. Associate producer is Faith Progalecki. Executive produced by Dominique Ferrari, Stacey Book, and Avi Glajanski for Riveter Studios and Frequency Machine. Executive produced by Arlen Hamilton for Arlen Was Here. Hosted and executive produced by me, Brenda Darden-Wilkerson for AnitaB.org. Podcast marketing from Lauren Passell and Ariel Nissenblatt with Riveter Studios and Tink Media in partnership with Carolyn Sneller and Coley Boucher at AnitaB.org. For more ways to be the way forward, visit AnitaB.org.